Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Sink or Swim podcast. We are four fourth-year students from Nova Southeastern University's College of Allopathic Medicine, where we will be teaching a little bit about our experiences behind certain aspects of medicine, make it interesting, fun, and informative all the same. I'll introduce myself first. My name is Rob Trenchell. I'm Jack Bear. I'm Josh Dodge. Jackie Mirza. And today we're going to talk about how we all tailored our applications to the specialties that we applied to for the match. We're going to mention largely there will be other component, other specialties, but largely there will be internal medicine, emergency medicine, and orthopedic surgery will be the, the three that we talk about the most. And we'll go into many aspects of it, including what we initially wanted, why we chose this one, um, what contributed to our decision-making process and what the application looked like as a whole. So we will go ahead and get started. Um, Jackie, I'll move it to you first. The very first question is uh, what specialty did we initially think we'd apply to? What changed that as we went through medical school? The reason that I'm asking Jackie first, everybody, is because she has probably the most interesting story um, on this question. Oh, don't. Don't make that. Face. I think that's you, fair. I think, I that's, think very that's fair. true or fair, but um, I'll start with this one. So anyone who knew me in college or at least for the first year or two of medical school knew me as someone who wanted to pursue cardiac surgery. That was something I was really certain of, and I was certain that I wouldn't change my mind. So I kind of came in with blinders on to medical school. I befriended one of the cardiac surgeons on our faculty. Um, I made it my business to get involved in surgery things, surgery research. Um, I'm jumping a bit ahead, but uh, kind of during clerkships was when the decision kind of became solidified for me. I scrubbed in on a lot of cabbages, which are um, kind of a bread and butter cardiac surgery procedure um, a number of times. And kind of what I ended up, should I tell the hat story? Tell the hat story. I'm going to tell the hat story. So the hat story is I was scrubbed in on this cabbage. Um, which is a long, maybe five, six-hour cardiac procedure where you reroute the vessels in the heart to increase blood flow. And I remember being the only woman in the room during this cardiac surgery. There were probably 15 people in there. I was on two step stools stacked on top of each other because I'm quite small. And I remember kind of looking around the room, and I had this little lunch lady bouffant on to keep my hair off of the, the sterile field. And one of the surgeons looked at me across the table and was like, you have a hair sticking out of your um, your bouffant. And I can't reach up and touch my hat because it would break sterile fields. So I'm like, oh, I, I, sorry. So then they had one of the scrub nurses come and stack another bouffant on my head to uh, hide the hair. And then this kind of became like a joke. And then by the end of the surgery, I had six to seven bouffants stacked on top of my head. Um, which is kind of funny looking back, but I think it kind of solidified for me. Not that this was the only thing. This was just kind of a, a transition point for me when I kind of started to see, um, are these really the people I want to spend 80 hours a week with? Do I feel like this is kind of the environment that I'm really going to be comfortable and thrive in? Is this the way I want my work day to look? And so I kind of started having these thoughts. I spoke to a few um, female vascular surgeons and cardiac surgeons and kind of heard about their lifestyle, which was something I kind of laughed at early in medical school. I kind of laughed at, oh, why would, you know, lifestyle doesn't matter as long as you love your career, which looking back was kind of a naive way to look at it. I think I wish I'd put more emphasis on lifestyle early on. 
and I made the transition to internal medicine. I found a lot of cardiac subspecialties of internal medicine that have everything kind of that I wanted in cardiac surgery in them, like electrophysiology, structural heart, et cetera. So that's kind of what I've pivoted to, which in the practical day-to-day of what conditions I'll be seeing and treating is pretty similar, but the training process is vastly different, as are the people that I'll be interacting with. So that's my little spiel. Did did any of the female surgeons that you talked to, did they, you, you, you mentioned that they had like lifestyle things that maybe turned you off, mm-hmm. um, but did any of them have any stories like a bouffant story or the hat story where they were kind of... Um, they had not necessarily, I think that's kind of one of the funnier stories. A lot of them, it's funny looking back, um, but, um, it's one of my favorite dinner stories now, but what, there was one vascular surgeon, um, whose name I won't disclose, who talked about, she worked in a practice for a number of years, um, that was all male aside from her. And she kind of told me stories about how she would get cases at the level of an intern. They would give her all the intern level cases, nothing interesting. She received less pay than her male colleagues. Um, Worse vacation times. They always got the holidays before her, even if she'd been there as long as them and had the same training as them. She actually had a super specialized degree within vascular surgery, which should have accorded her, you know, benefits in this private practice. But she feels that she kind of got the short end of the stick um, routinely, routinely yeah. working in this private practice where y- you would think that they'd all be equals. So hearing things like that, the, the prospect of going through all this training, having all these sacrifices, she had no family, she had no spouse, no children. She talked about feeling really lonely all the time and feeling like she'd given all these things up. And then she's still kind of suffering in her practice, even though she's reached the level of private practice. Um, and that really depressed me to hear. So, um, didn't, didn't want that to be me. <laughs> She sent me yeah. about 25 articles. She asked for my phone number so she could just send me like 25 articles about why not to be a woman in surgery. Um, and I think she meant like the the highly specialized subspecialties of surgery. And yeah. I, I think general surgery might have been different. Um, but like cardiac surgery, vascular surgery are very, very male-dominated fields, um, which was something I didn't consider at all when I kind of latched onto it. So looking back, I, I, I'm glad that I went the way that I went because I think I you know, was exposed myself to uh, good mentors and whatnot throughout the process, but um, definitely feel that I've made the right choice now. And that's the important part. There's a lot of aspects, a lot of a lot of things throughout our lives that kind of influence what we decide to do. And it wasn't just the hat story, but it was a lot of a culmination of clearly your clinical years that kind of helps you make that decision towards internal medicine. I think that's a very common occurrence is over the course of your clinical years, a lot of people really decide to switch from whatever yeah. they wanted to do originally mm-hmm. to what they're doing now. Yeah, I had a very similar situation. Um, I won't go into it because I'm boring, but uh, I was interested <laughs> in orthopedic surgery or any kind of surgery. And then I chose to switch to internal medicine just because I liked it better to be honest with you i'm not going to get into why or whatever but it was it was a switch and switches are are very very common so props to you for making such a big switch especially after kind of putting a large portion of your identity into doing ct surgery ct cardiothoracic excuse me and um kind of having the 
the wherewithal and the, the moxie to make the switch. That's good. That's big. Thank yeah, you. got to be really open to switching. I know there was someone that I actually rotated with, a fourth-year rotation. I rotated with someone in Kentucky. He was also a medical student doing ortho rotations, was totally planning on doing ortho um, as his specialty. And after our Kentucky rotation, which was particularly brutal, um, he canceled the rest of his ortho aways and realized that ortho wasn't for him. So, and the... I mean, he did that at a particularly stressful time to change right before residency applications mm -hmm. were out. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's better to switch out of a field that you don't want to do before you're already in it. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of people are stuck with because they're so afraid to switch out of their field. And then they're going to be stuck with uh, <coughs> surgical residency for the next five years and have to maybe go into a fellowship that they don't want to do and have to keep climbing that. So it's definitely good to switch and, you know, Having a happy life is probably the most important thing. Yeah. It does feel a little like an identity crisis, though, which sounds a little silly to say it like that. But I remember feeling a little bit like I was losing a piece of me switching off of that path after telling so many people, getting personally invested in this future. Um, I felt a little embarrassed to start now having to go back and change what felt like a pretty big piece of me at the time and feeling like I knew what my life was going to look like for at least the next, you know, six to eight years um, having to start from scratch was a little scary. Um, I think that was all I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah um, I think it's important to be honest with yourself, and that's kind of what you two have been saying. Like, understand what you like, why you like it, and kind of what you want your life to look like moving forward. Yeah. This orthopedic surgery student <clears throat> decided he didn't like what he saw, and you didn't like what you experienced, and you know, I, whatever for me, but like still, um, it's being honest with yourself is incredibly important. It's, it's number one, really. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I imagine that anyone that really is seriously considering a surgery specialty should just wait to have a surgery clerkship before going all in on it. Mm -hmm. Just cause there's so much other things to learn about surgery as a career mm -hmm. that you, that are that don't have to do with the like surgery itself, um, like work hours and work environment and call and all that stuff. It's important to consider, I think, the types of people you'll be working with too, which yeah. I didn't really consider at all. Like when I thought about cardiac surgery, I didn't think about like what, what does that workforce look like? What is the day gonna look like? What are my interactions during lunch gonna look like? Yeah. But that ended up being kind of important. So definitely to people considering those things, not <coughs> only to, bless you, not only to do surgery and expose yourself, but also talk to as many people as you can, hear their experiences, hear what they like, hear what they didn't like, hear what went into their decisions, and prepare to be talked out of it by sad, overworked residents. Um, and if you really like it, you know, then, then that's something to consider. But I remember feeling like I was having to talk myself into it. Like I was reading books and essays and podcasts of like female surgeons talking about working in these fields and I felt like dread and like I had to come up with with reasons to do it and that was you know at the end of the day I think if I had to convince myself that hard it was the wrong choice so if you find yourself there like you're trying to convince yourself you, you probably shouldn't have to <laughs> I do think it was good though that like because you were saying like you have to be ready to like look into yourself before considering a surgical specialty I like the idea of you know, you're preparing yourself for 
the most competitive route possible. And then if you decide you don't want to do that, then you have so much wiggle room to kind of get your dream residency for like internal medicine, um, which is like huge. Like you had uh, cardiology papers already in, like mm -hmm. all that stuff and like preparing for boards and all that stuff. Like it was all geared towards getting a very competitive specialty. And then when you realize you didn't want to do it, now you have so much wiggle room to get into like very competitive residencies in a less competitive specialty. Yeah, and, so and I think that's huge. Exactly. And a lot of the interviews have asked about like it looks like you have a lot of surgery stuff on your application, but especially in a field like internal medicine, a lot of people switch into internal medicine, but a lot of people don't switch into like cardiac surgery halfway mm -hmm. through med school. So it's it is much easier to make that transition and in something like I am there they don't hold that against you. If anything, it's something to talk about. You can talk about what brought you into the field and because no, no one is born being like, I'm going to do internal medicine. I didn't even know what internal medicine was until med school. A lot of people don't. And it's still kind of hard to express to people like what exactly it is. Like, it's all internal medicine. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, what? So like, is that different than the doctor that I go see? Like, yes, yes, it is. But like, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> so anybody listening also, I want you, I want you to be uh, just rest assured that it, even if you eventually do decide that like you want to switch, you can switch. Switching is no big deal. And if you want to stay with what you're doing, stay. Like this, like this isn't. It, it's not life or death. You're gonna, you're gonna be, you're gonna make the most out of every situation you're in. You got this far. You're gonna be fine. Just listen to your heart, and really, like Jack and Jackie have been saying, just experience as much of it as you can, and do as well as you can the whole way through. And likely you'll you'll find something that suits you best. And that's the key is find something that fits you, not necessarily that you fit into. Mm -hmm. Because you'll constantly be trying to fit yourself into something if you look at that. But just kind of understand that you're important here too. Yeah. Look for something that fits who you are. Absolutely. That's and people change saying. during residency. Like we met plenty of residents during rotations of people who did an intern year and then switched or were starting their second residency because they maybe did general surgery and then wanted to do internal medicine so like people also change their mind it's actually never too late to change your mind it may set you back a year or two but you you have plenty of time nothing is set in stone forever that's true so i met, ahead, I met, I met one guy rotating um who is an i think he was an intern at at a hospital i was rotating at and he was an emergency medicine intern and um he didn't even rotate in emergency medicine. He did all these, he did general surgery rotations and it, he finished his fourth year not having done a single emergency medicine rotation. And he just decided it wasn't for him. And he contacted the program directors of emergency medicine programs. He's like, basically said, I was really thinking I want to do surgery and I've like since changed my mind. I'm really much more dedicated to emergency medicine. Do you think I could interview with you all? And they said sure, and then he got in to the the spot. I, I I actually knew someone who was an intern in surgery who then switched out into <laughs> emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. So it happens all the time, and it tends to happen out of the the surgery <laughs> specialties. But yeah. no hate for surgeons. No hate yeah. for surgeons. We got one in here. I met when I was at UConn. I met there's a fifth year resident there who was a general surgery attending for five years in a different country. And he came to America, started over, and went into orthosurgery. 
Wow. Oh that, my goodness. That's a long that's road. That's a long road. <laughs> Did he say why he made the switch? I think, I mean, just better opportunities in America. Mm. USA. <laughs> it's, it's true. It is best here. Um, so I think that's good to kind of transition into the next question when we we kind of touched a little bit on this, but like factors that we decided or factors that we considered when looking into the specialties that we wanted to go into. Um, I think we touched on that to an extent. Jackie definitely did. Um, just kind of to speak for myself, something I really liked was kind of like a really like a challenging environment with a really supportive um, cast around you was like really important to me. That was a what I noticed when I did my internal medicine rotation. So that's what I one of the big considerations for me. Plus, it gives you a lot of options. You know, I'm kind of just a generalist guy, like a jack of all trades, master of none to begin with. So that's kind of just the internal medicine lifestyle. And you can go, you can super specialize from there. So I like kind of both those aspects of of IM. What about you guys? Okay. I, I feel like I should I should go right after that because EM and IM share so much, it and it actually be kind of fun to to discuss what the differences what we think the differences would be. But that's I mean a lot of what you said is is kind of why I chose. I like the idea of like being a doctor who can address as many situations as they possibly can, like competently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like emergency medicine. Like you get a patient that presents with a chief complaint. You don't get a patient that presents with uh, a diagnosis or with CTs already. And so you, you like run through the whole thing. Um, and I felt like a lot of time I spent in medical school practicing being a doctor. It was a lot of chief complaint based um, problems to solve. And then a lot of the questions are chief complaint problems to solve. Um, and <clears throat> emergency medicine is where I found like that's where I found that kind of environment and I was like really I was really about it um, so I the jack of all trades is really what attracted me to emergency medicine and EM and IM share so much um, in common yeah. it's um, I guess it's, the differences might be in like the longitudinal care versus non-longitudinal care but um there's definitely shades of gray yeah quite a few yeah yeah they overlap big time that's why they have like for someone considering both what factors would you say would make someone lean one way or another i i I can only speculate i a lot of the emergency physicians that i know um they like they like undifferentiated patients and they like resuscitations like they like the really exciting stuff and they like problem solving and that's what they really attracts them to emergency medicine because that's basically all emergency medicine is mm. um and my understanding of internal medicine is that most people go into internal medicine with the idea of becoming some fellowship specialized um doctor like they don't i don't know too many people like do i am and are gung-ho hospitalists which is um, what an IM doctor would be if they didn't further specialize. So I don't know if that's your all's take on that as well, um, but that's always been mine is that a lot of ER docs kind of, they like that generalist thing, whereas a lot of IM, uh, they, they kind of, they're excited about getting into a, a certain fellowship. Hmm. What's your, your all's opinion? There? No, I, I agree. I think that there's, there's general, there's like a generalist approach in both. Right. And, Something I liked a lot about IM was just the ability to kind of springboard 
from the residency into a fellowship. Yeah. I'm currently interested in cardiology, much like Jackie is, but I also considered palm crit for a while as well. Um, so having the opportunity to explore both of those is kind of only, it's pretty, I am like only. You can really only yeah. do that there. Especially so, the cardiology bit. Right. And palm crit is I am specially. Right. But the but crit like part's EM, not. You but can do critical care. You can do critical care. You can't do palm crit. Mm. But most people who do palm crit, I think, are excited about the uh, intensivist side, not the pulmonology side. I could be wrong. But. No, no. I, I, I agree. I agree. That's, that's a lot of the reason that people go into palm crit. So palm, for those listening, palm crit is the fellowship to become an intensivist. The ICU doctor. The ICU doctor, excuse me, yeah. So when we say palm crit, we're referring to wanting to work in an ICU. Mm -hmm. So those were my two, that's what I was between, was ICU work or cardiology work. And then you could also go into the ICU from cardiology, but we're getting a little little into the weeds there. So it's just a lot of opportunities to explore a lot of different fields. And that's what I liked about it. Or one of the things I liked about it. You didn't mention the shift work. I thought you were going to mention that. In that part's nice, system. I gotta admit, yeah. But the if you just stick to the hospitalist versus non-hospitalist thing, I th- I don't think hospitalists have sh- uh, call either. They just they're also shift work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, so to me, it's different than EM. Like to me, one of the differences I don't want to speak for you. No, but go ahead. One of the differences I feel there is is that when you clock out from EM, you're kind of just off. Yeah. Like, this is not. These are not my patients. I'm not gonna get called at three a.m. Which is much not the case in a lot of internal medicine, where if you're on call. You are still going to be called in in the middle of the night. But yeah. DM, if you're at the hospital, you're there. And if you're home, you're home. And I feel like that is kind of a big difference for some people who want that to be is. able to, like, check out, go on vacation with their families and leave, which you, you can't really do the same way in internal medicine. I agree. I mean, when you come back, your patient's going to be there. Right. So like, these are still your patients. You have to be very aware. I we've I, When I was on my sub, I heard uh, stories of the attending was off but he would still call the resident team at like 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. and oh, kind wow. of figure out what was going on. So while that's probably a fringe case, I mean, I don't know for sure, it is, it's something that that internal medicine doc found very important is to maintain kind of touch points with his patients. That's actually something I know that this, and maybe this is points to something about me that's unique to the EM field, um, but... Um, I actually really like that about the IM. Um, I like longitudinal care quite a bit. And I like the idea of solve, solving hard, long problems that that will uh, um, take a long work up and have several different ways that can go and things like that. And getting to know a patient and, and developing that relationship. I, I actually liked all of that about IM. And surgery and just a lot of the fields that have longitudinal care like that. Um, So I I don't know what to make of that because I chose EM and that's basically like the one specialty that doesn't have that for sure. Um, Unless you do critical care through EM, which you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, Peds? 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 Through EM too? Peds to... Oh, Peds EM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can do Peds EM. And that is likely going to be... Not longitudinal, but you'll probably see the same kids coming through that ED. You know, there's always frequent flyers in emergency. There's rooms, frequent flyers. That is yeah. true too. As uh, having a patient for a week, but <laughs> yeah, but the um, the PTM, I would say, is, is closer to 
the medicine is closer to peds than it is to, to em but i would also say that the the i don't know the work environment i suppose is closer to em than it is to peds yeah um yeah i agree because you do have frequent flyers there are moms that freak out all the time that bring in their kids that mm-hmm. You know, but in terms of the real emergencies that aren't upper respiratory infections, and that's the vast majority of PZM is actually just upper respiratory infections and like oh, yeah. broken bones or something. Um, it's all croup. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, some of the ones that are, and you'll get to know those patients, I guess, And um, but it's never going to be something interesting. Um, the ones that are interesting are not patients that you really know because something actually happened to them when it was, mm-hmm. and it was a rare thing. Right. So. All right. Um, so that, that, was, that was a good discussion on kind of differences and similarities. Jack, you're up. For what? Why, why ortho? Why ortho? Like uh, what you like about it? Like not as, you know, Did the you whole thing. Did you ever consider any other specialties? Uh, I knew I always wanted to go into a surgical specialty. Um, I think ortho is really great because they just have such an immediate outcome on like patient morbidity. Um, someone breaks their femur, you can throw in an IM nail, they'll be walking the next day, which is just like a baffling concept to me. Um, surgeries are really cool. The culture is really great. Um, like that, that gym bro culture. I really <laughs> like it a lot. I think it fosters a lot of good camaraderie. Um, and then I just like, I prefer not to be, well, I mean, like typically I like being a jack of all trades, but I think like I want to, um, really put a focus on my medical knowledge where like I am where like this specific pathology ends and like I'm going to be like the expert that the rest of the hospital calls on when this comes in um so that's something I like quite a bit um there's definitely a lot more reasons why I like ortho I think they have like the coolest procedures also and yeah (laughs) keep going didn't you just have an interview yesterday (laughs) (laughs) yesterday. um yeah I mean it's just great field to be in i like uh being the expert yeah i hear the pay is nice too the pay is also really nice and i mean <laughs> that's that that always helps the cause and i mean it's just crazy how in medical school how little ortho knowledge is 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 taught to you like in medical school the most you really have to know about ortho is is what is osteoarthritis and what is rheumatoid arthritis which and is how are like, they different it prepares you zero for like ortho rotations and i think that's like that's also a big contributing factor of like why a lot of other medical specialties don't really have a significant amount of knowledge on ortho except em except em i think I, i'm going to talk i'm going to mention kind of a something about what you just said how you don't really learn a lot about ortho like you said until you get to third year right at least and then you get to fourth year and then you learn even more that is something that i've learned a lot about just medical school in general is you know you learn through studying at your computer or whatever at your textbooks for the first two years and you think like this is all that medicine is and then you get into the clinics and you're like i don't know anything about medicine and Seems like you mostly learn IM in the first two years. Absolutely. Like you, you yeah. do. You learn a lot about like, oh, you could argue EM too, and right? Because you learn yeah. a lot about diagnostics. And yeah. You you very you rarely learn about how to like manage these diseases or how yeah. just how they even differ from each other. You just kind of almost plug and play some of these diagnoses into 
just question. I didn't even I didn't even know small bowel obstruction was a pathology until third year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how. No, <laughs> never even heard I'm, of. I'm it. telling you, I'd never heard of acute metabolic encephalopathy. Yeah, and that's the only reason people are coming in to the to the <laughs> patient floor. I'm, I mean, not the only reason, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's just so common. Yeah, very. And I'm, yeah. I'm, where is this in first aid? You know, like someone help me. <laughs> so, it probably is literally in there, but it's it's radically underemphasized because yeah. there's so many rare diseases you have to learn in first year that you you. you I know what you're saying. It, right. it feels like. The emphasis is is already like shifted. It's shifted very I M E M kind of um, in that direction, mm-hmm. and then you have no sense for which of these is important and like high, uh, you know, quote unquote high yield diseases that you see all the time, and which of them are you'll never you know you'll never see them, mm-hmm. like those peds, yeah. like inborn errors of metabolism, yeah. like you just you'll have a patient your whole life that right. has that. And, and you probably had that patient on your PEDS rotation in third year. And you'll right. never see yeah. it ever. And or like never on the exam again. you yeah. take at the end. Exactly. Right. And it's like. going to see that patient. But you learn, so you, you spend like a month learning, you know, metabolism, metabolic diseases that you'll never see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And so I kind of want to segue a little bit now into the next question, which is related on boards, right? Like the first two years are all dedicated towards boards. You almost don't really know or care about the clinic because you have so much time spent in just diagnosing a textbook. So let's talk a little bit about um, board scores and how they help to determine a specialty or how your scores kind of changed uh, like your plans first pers- yeah your plans like your your perception of your future and like what you think about the past fail aspect let's let's do all those mm-hmm. so jack yes board scores did that help you like solidify your your orthopedic surgery desires at all i mean it helps that well i i i went into med school like kind of my list of specialties i want to do was ortho surgery and then the rest of the list was blank so I got my <laughs> one, like two. a true ortho. Yeah. So Did I, you actually have a list? Did uh, you have a little list or? Well, it was like what Dr. DeLeon said when he's like, mine was OBGYN and it was a blank page after that. Yeah. So I was like, same thing. I had okay. the same thing, but it was cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so and I tried to keep an open mind, sort of, and like I looked towards like trauma surgery and all that stuff because I knew I wanted a surgical specialty. But uh, getting board scores, I was pretty much right on the average for ortho like to the point or maybe like one point above at the time and um so i mean that helps like tell me that hey i'm still in the game so like i can keep doing this it makes it a little difficult when like you're coming from a newer medical school like us but just knowing i was still in the game was was very helpful to me um and like i was going to keep pursuing it i do think though i mean it's it's different now that step is pass fail but like you should look at your board scores like with a realistic vision. So like if you get a 220, you're probably not going to get like a dermatology residency. It doesn't mean like you can't keep trying, but you definitely have to keep your eyes open and like have other doors out there for you. Like you can't close everything off at that point. So um, when I was on, when I hit that average, I was like, okay, I'm still just going to go for ortho or bust and I'm still in the game. So that helped. You're still in the game. Still in the game. <laughs> By quite a large margin, I'd say. He is definitely in the game. Yeah. This, you're, you're making the game. Well, we'll you're see. carrying. We'll see. So, the, yeah, the pass-fail thing's tough because everybody listening to this will likely 
be in a pass fail situation moving yeah. forward. Um, so you kind of gotta, like I was saying in the beginning, be honest with yourself. Like you still gotta study for step one, even though it's pass fail, gotta study because a lot of step two is step one. And if you didn't study for step one, then you're gonna be studying for step one and step two when step two rolls around. And oh if yeah. You, if you underestimate step one and you do fail, your life's over, pretty much. Yeah. Like, that's just the real. That's that's really the thing. If you fail step <laughs> one, and this is what every medical student should know, whether you're first year or you're starting to apply to medical school, like if you if you blunder and you fail step one, like you are in a lot of trouble. Like you've just closed quite a bit of doors. Do they? Do, is it a? Per- is there a minimum performance of pass fail, or is it like always the bottom fifth percentile that fails? I'm not sure, and we don't like, have data on that. Yeah, so. I don't know the answer. Um, but that's an interesting question. That is that is an interesting <laughs> question. But when step two rolls around, that still is important. So I think that we can actually talk talk about step two scores and how that might persuade or dissuade somebody from going into a certain subspecialty. Yeah. So something like ortho. You know, you're going to get a score on your step two, and this is at the end of third year. And if you've decided that you want to do ortho and you get like all these ortho publications and you've made so many good relationships and you get a 220 on step two, like you, as, as was said, you really need to kind of reconsider where you stand from a competitiveness standpoint. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially and now that everything or step one's pass fail. Sorry. Right. And that reconsideration for some people may be taking a gap year to do more research, make more connections with programs, do more rotations, or it may look like applying to ortho and to general surgery and expanding your uh, your pool of things. So, so that reconsideration may look different for different people as well. Yes. Yes. So you, again, like what, what do you want to do? What are you willing to do? and kind of make a scoring matrix. What's most important to you? We met a a plastic surgery, um, integrated plastic surgeon resident, Danielle Ward, um, at Kendall during rotations, who I think applied to plastic surgery maybe four times and did not match. And she continued to reapply and reapply and reapply, and she did eventually match. So it takes a lot of determination and a lot of uh, grit and a lot of resilience to be able to do something like that and a lot of money. But um, she she did. I mean, she knew she wanted to be a plastic surgeon, and she didn't let scores or anything stand in her way. So if if you are one of those people who eats, live, and breathes one of these really competitive subspecialties and you get a low board score, it's not the end of the world, but you may need to, you know, really kind of find the mental and emotional fortitude and financial stability in order to uh, reapply that many times. But it's not it's – not, for sure, you're never going to do it. It's just you probably won't do it with your cohort. That's true. And Do we, we want to just take her name out of that, though, or keep it in? She's very public about her journey. Cool. Yeah, okay. she's, she likes sharing that. Sounds good. We love you, Danielle. We do. <laughs> Thank you for all your help on the surgery rotation. We needed it. Um, <laughs> and support, mainly the support. Anyway, um, uh, a big I, I think a big thing is kind of being um, – being being open to changing um just being open to change really because medical school that's what medical school is just one big change month after month after month mm-hmm. yeah and one change can either derail you if you see it that way or <coughs> rerail you onto a different path forward so be be open to that and also like no one really cares about your changes like something i remember feeling really self-conscious 
like I said before, but like no one really cares, especially like people at your school, friends and family. Most of the time people just want to see you in the specialty that's right for you. So just like no one cares that you're not going to do surgery anymore. You're the only one who cares about that. So just and you have to live with yourself and live your life. So make choices for you, not for other people. Yeah. And people listening to this have probably had difficulty even just getting into medical school. I mean, I know I did. I can name at least three other people as well in our class that did. So sitting right here. I'm one sitting right here. I got rejected. Yes, <laughs> I I have been rejected before as well. Well, I got rejected to this school. That was <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> Another man very public about his journey, Jack Bear. Our class president. Our class president. I got rejected for four this, years straight. Four more, four years. more years. I here, got here. Rejected from this school, and then they revoked your revoked my rejection. I'm I think I I had a very normal like I interviewed. Um, and then got accepted, and I was like, done. Good no wait you. list, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that, is that one for you, Jackie? Yes, yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. So there's <laughs> all, all walks of life here. Yep. <laughs> but, um, I mean, one way or the other, we're all resilient. But, so, uh, and also, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Whatever path you took to get here, we all start as first-year medical students knowing basically the same things. Which is nothing. Which is nothing, mm-hmm. which should be nothing. And if you know something, you don't. So you come yep. in as a blank slate. <laughs> We all do, and it doesn't matter what paths anybody took to get here because we're all going to take the same test at the same time. So that also stops mattering the second you walk in the door. It's true. Med school is for sure the great equalizer. As it should be, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a short enough training process that I think we all need to just put our egos aside and go through the steps that we all go pretty, through. Pretty long training process, though. <laughs> it is. It is. You got to be dedicated. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. All right. So well, let, when, when do you think you should take step two? So I took step two. I actually moved my step two back. I was supposed to take it at the end of May, and um, I didn't like how I was scoring, so I moved it back, took it at the end of June. And so I continued studying in June during a ICU rotation. So that was oh, that was tough. Wow. That one was – didn't like that. But the – I mean, you know, the result the result's fine. And that was a change I had to make, right? Pushing things back. And yeah. I think it was a good time. So I think pushing back from May to June wasn't really an issue. So I think that's pretty ideal is like right at the start of fourth year. That way things go wrong. You, you can, can always re- push it back. You can either push it back or you can just do, you can just reconsider your pathway forward. Yeah. I pushed mine until July. Um, I had like, not not because of uh, of scoring issues or anything like that, but just because of I wanted to get into the clinic and do my away rotations um, before the new interns came, mm. because uh, I I thought that I would get more opportunity, and I did get more opportunities to do kind of some of the stuff that um you you know the new incoming interns want to do, like the the arterial lines and the central lines and the intubations not that i got to do any of those but if those ever come up it's it always goes like to an ortho resident or peripheral ivs or stenting or something like that like the incoming interns are the number one priority so if you come in um with all of the incoming interns then especially in er you're less likely to get some of the training that you would if there were no incoming interns and everyone had already had at least a year under their belt but um, having said that, 
my uh, I I was in a similar boat to Rob, where in in July I wasn't scoring where I wanted to, but I didn't have much of an option to like push it back too far, and so I ended up just taking step two in a position where I wasn't scoring that well, and probably in hindsight would have done a lot better if I had pushed it back <laughs> and and uh, let myself like catch up to the the material some. So it's okay, you matched. Yeah, it doesn't matter now. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter good. now. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you, Josh. thank you. He's the only one that would truly proven methods yep <laughs> but also yep. i feel like if you wait like when you're in that practice test mode waiting for your scores to be perfect is kind of like a, a game that you're not going to win anyway i feel like you're never going to be happy with your scores and even if you're doing well you're going to get a bad score somewhere in there that's going to throw you off throw off your mindset so like waiting for it to be perfect is also a way to like not take the test ever so sometimes you just got to take the test and trust your pro your process and your preparation yeah, I took mine that May, so as soon as that month hit, our school gives us, and the fellow Nova listeners that are on, um, our school gives us any time before November to take a month of dedicated study time. So the very first month of fourth year, I took mine, um, and I put like a pressure on me that I'm going to get this done before ortho rotations start, and I think that this is pretty particular, particularly important for ortho because if you're in an ortho rotation, you are learning absolutely nothing that's going to help you for step two. <laughs> nothing. There will be nothing in your ortho rotation that's going to help you succeed. So you're going to forget quite a bit. Um, so I took my step uh, two down here in Florida, like May 27th, and then I drove up to Kentucky for my first away, like May 29th. So, um, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm very happy that I got it out of the way quick because if I waited even one rotation, I probably would have gone down like 30 points. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, so the moral story here, I think is that we all took it very like early, early. Yeah. Ta taking it early, I think is the right move plan for early. Definitely. Yeah. I think. And then um, I felt good because I, I got it out of the way, and then I was looking over here at Josh just yeah, I was <laughs> like, I'm yeah. sick of studying I did I, I did the so July good. thing, and I recommend not doing the July thing. I yeah. recommend plan for May and, and allow yourself the opportunity to push to June if you really need to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just one month. Like, like everything in fourth year really does matter. Like the timing yeah. of everything is big. And so now that we're talking about that, let's let's move down a little bit to planning your fourth year. Mm -hmm. What is it that you guys did to plan your fourth year, and what did you, uh, what was it eventually? I can go first. Yeah. Um, we we already touched a little bit on it before, but um, I actually talked to a classmate of mine one year above about how she planned the whole thing. It was Haley because we're both military, so. Um, she was the one that gave me the July advice and it worked great for her, but, um, I still stand by my recommendation not to do that. <laughs> but, um, I, um, I knew I needed to do, you know, at least two away rotations. I was considering a third one to see if I could fit it in. Um, and I really had to make a selection ahead of time. What are the two places that I'm gung ho about? They're my like big number one choices. And that's, that's how I thought, like I was thinking, I want to go to all the places that I I really want to get into, my number one choices, and I'm going to rotate there. Um, 
I don't know if that's the right strategy, but that's the strategy I chose. Um, and I solidified those away rotations ahead of time. And I, I had to make the plan with the away rotations. You have to, you have to plan step two and your, uh, your important away rotations at the same time, because they all integrate into the same block of time, which is that summer in between third and fourth year. So I had to make the decision when I was going to take step two and then which rotations I was going to have at what point. Um, the, because I was doing the July thing, I said, okay, well, I'll do um, one home rotation in May for ER, kind of get my feet wet because no one, you don't take ER um, a clerkship in your third years. Um, your third in, in our school. In some our school. Yeah, some schools do that, but ours didn't. Um, and then I was, I was saying uh, my first one is going to be my, I, my first choice, and then my second one is going to be my second choice. But uh, ended up that what I thought would be my first choice was not my first choice, and what I thought would be my second choice ended up being my first choice. So it's you learn a lot during those away rotations. But that's kind of how I set it up. So I, was, so I basically wanted to do a get my feet wet ER rotation at my home um, and then do my first away rotation at my favorite spot. Then I took step two. Then I did my second favorite Um and uh, in hindsight, I would not have done it that way. I would have done step two at the gate and then probably if just the rest of them afterwards in that same order, like do a um, get a, get your feet wet. And I probably would have done get your feet wet, do your second favorite first and then your favorite second because in your favorite one, you've got the most experience under your belt and you're going to you're going to rock it. So hindsight, that's what I would have done. But what I did was very different. <laughs> That was a little weird. Um, I uh, <laughs> I kind of just wound up. Um, I I kind of flew by the seat of my pants, to be honest with you, and like just took um, applicate or took uh, I guess the best um, offer offers that I got in VSLO or in Clinician Nexus, which is our school's kind of way of giving rotations to fourth year students as well, and it wound up being actually like the best thing I could have done kind of on accident. So let me explain what you should do through my accidental success. I chose, I did a ICU rotation as my very first one. That was a problem obviously with step two, but that ICU rotation was great because you, you work 12 hours a day and you learn a ton of stuff and you deal with really sick patients and like everybody's really like, completely focused at all times and you got to be on it was good to kind of start medical or fourth year medical school that way right like focused boom this is it second rotation was an em rotation and i did that because that was a clinical uh opportunity i had and i needed clinical credits so i did it and my third rotation was a uh, cardiology rotation up in the Northeast. And that was great because it was up in the Northeast and it was cardiology. So I get to get exposed to something I think I might be interested in. Where was your ICU rotation? It, down here at Aventura. Oh, yeah. okay. And my fourth rotation, so this is all four months, my fourth rotation was up in New York at a uh, at a hospital that was, it was like a community hospital, but it was a sub-I. So it was also, again, like a kind of a 12-hour day thing. You had a lot of responsibilities. 
and was a way to sh showcase what you can do clinically. That was in ICU? That was in, um, that was on the floors. That was just oh, general floors, medical just floors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, not just I am, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And then was September, and or late September, and we got, we had to send an ERAS. So, at, long story short, what I did was the first four months was the medical, just medicine in general, the last line of defense, ICU. Then I did first line of defense, EM. And then I did a specialty within internal medicine, cardiology, just to kind of get my feet wet there. And then I did general medical floors, basically all of IM next. And I was like evaluated very, very strongly. Oh, I bet I, you were a rock star at the IM rotation. I so bet. That, that was nice, right? That was, that was the whole reason that I did that was because I didn't have a sub I in the summer before ERAS applications were going to go out because of, you know, the fact that I was considering ortho or surgery previously. And then they decided to move my sub I back into December. It's not, it's neither here nor there, but I didn't have a sub I before ERAS applications went out. So I did that and then applications went out. So that that's what I that that it was perfect. First line of defense, last line of defense, everything in between, and then a subspecialty above it, and then applications went out. So you learned. I learned everything. That you yeah, yeah. Basically, you covered I mean, not everything, but like I, I saw everything before before. Um, and you got your feet wet in your area of interest, right. cardiology. Right. So that's what I did on accident. But I would absolutely suggest doing something like that if you're interested in internal medicine is do an EM resident or do an EM rotation, do an ICU rotation, do an actual IM rotation just on the floors and do a subspecialty before everything goes out. It's a lot, but you can do it. And it definitely gives you a wide breadth of knowledge and a lot to talk about on your interviews. That sounds like the perfect way to do if you're doing IM. Yeah. That just sounds like good education. Yeah, it was accident. It was an accident. And letters. And they were good for good for letters as well we can talk about letters we can talk about letters now if you want okay well do you want to do you two want to talk about yeah, I mean, I can pitch in. how you <clears throat> scheduled your fourth years so fourth year um took my step two exam pretty early i applied through vslow um to several i kind of just sent out as many apps as i could in places that i had a chance of getting into so i know people in the past have run into the issue that they are applying for ortho rotations at like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, UCLA. And it's just places that they're going to waste an opportunity of potentially getting an interview. So like all six of my OAs, um, I got interviews at. And so that is six interviews that I would not have gotten otherwise, most likely. So I went from Kentucky to Yukon to Rochester to Georgetown to Ohio State and to Orlando Health. That was a very crazy crazy six months um, I would end in one state on a Friday I would start in the next state on a Monday so very difficult but I think it was very very worth it now before my rotation started there was a um, program director not for ortho but just a, a pediatric program director that was giving me advice saying um, taking what month was it March April May June June away rotations for a surgical residency is tough because the goal of your rotations is essentially to like look better than the interns, which you're not gonna do with interns at the end of their first year. So my first rotation, I definitely left a little disappointed in my performance. Um, 
And, you know, like attendings kind of have short-term memory of how stupid interns really are when they first start. So, but then for my next five rotations, I had a month more of experience than all the interns that I was with. So that was really helpful. So I like the way I did it. I like that I got a lot of interviews for, from it. And I think it's important to be realistic about where you go, not to choose like Ivy League schools when you're not quite like an Ivy League applicant. And that kind of goes with all of the um, all the specialties to an extent. Definitely a lot for the hyper competitive ones. Yeah, like ortho, I was gonna say that plays a big role in that. Much less for like internal medicine. Like or I went, I went to I went to Harvard for one of my OAs, but and I unfortunately didn't get an interview from them. But I did get a letter, so I imagine that was somewhat helpful. Yeah. How did you schedule yours, Jackie? Um, mine looked pretty similar to uh, Rob's, actually. So I started with my sub-internship, though, in internal medicine, um, which was at the same hospital that I did a lot of my cores at. So it ended up feeling a lot like my like an extension of my third year um, doing my sub-I there, but I'm glad I started with that. And then I went up to Orlando. I did a pediatrics rotation, which I did not apply to, but I like the kiddos. And it was in nephrology, which is like a friend of the heart. So that was kind of fun uh, to do some kidney stuff, which I'm I'm frightened of the kidney so i was happy to do a rotation uh focused on kidney Scary organ. I, i'm you're you're definitely gonna be a cardiologist there's no way you're not gonna... <laughs> i'm definitely gonna be a cardiologist um so then i did my uh, cardiology rotation which i knew i wanted to do i wanted to get a cardiology letter um i wanted to get a cardiology letter from a head of a department um i kind of knew that going into my fourth year because i applying to internal medicine i've been strongly discouraged from talking too much about wanting to subspecialize, but I um, I guess I'm terrible at taking advice. I, I've told a lot of people that I want to do cardiology because I feel like it's all over my application. Um, so I did a cardiology rotation. I went there kind of with the mindset of wanting to get a letter. And then I did another internal medicine sub-internship um, out of state at a, in a city that I was interested in doing residency in, um, at a hospital I was interested in. And then I came back down here. I did an emergency medicine rotation, which I also did because I'm frightened of emergency medicine. And I wanted to get some exposure. Um, and then, you know, it just kind of, it's been interviews and whatnot since then. So um, I, I think I kind of went in went into my fourth year hoping to get as much internal medicine under my belt as possible prior to rotations, uh, rather interviews, um, to try to go to as many cities you know, in areas maybe that I didn't have any like family connections in to try to open those doors for interviews. Um, and then also kind of going into it thinking if I need to get X amount of letters by the time applications roll out and I submit ERAS, where am I hoping to get those letters from? Even if they're at larger institutions, um, kind of trying to, even if I don't think I'm gonna interview there, making sure that I can at least try to get that name attached to me somehow um, to maximize uh, what is it? Options for residency. So I think I went into it kind of with that mindset, but um, which I, I think was uh, a fine a fine way to do it. So you did what, like two IM, one PEDS? And a cardiology. And a cardiology. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, I think the moral of the story on this one, we should move off it, but is do not take a gunslinger attitude. It is definitely like think about what you want to do, where you want to do it, and how it's going to 
best tailored to your specific application. Two IMs and a PEDS, three IMs and an EM, all EMs, all orthos, whatever, whatever that looks like for you, just make sure you do it with intention. And one of the, the big uh, takeaways is also, I think, what Jackie said, which is the letters. And I think we should really talk about the letters, where if you have an opportunity to use letters from your fourth year, use those as opposed to the letters from your third year. Fourth year letters are much more important because you are much sooner or closer in proximity to, or uh, like from a time perspective, to your application process in your fourth year. You did good on your OB guide rotation back in August of your third year. Like, who's to say that you're going to be a good, you know, a good resident come a year and a half from then? Mm-hmm. There are residencies that say specifically on their site that they're not going to take letters o- older than six months. Yeah, mm-hmm. like that's actually really common that you see. So, while you might also get a letter from your third year clerkship director or whatever in um, like February, March, whatever time frame that looks like, that would work. Um, in September, definitely go with your fourth year preceptors mm-hmm. over your third year preceptors. And I think it varies from specialty to specialty too. I know for a cardiac surgery, for instance, they they wouldn't have really cared about letters that weren't from A surgeons and B cardiac surgeons. Even a cardiologist would have felt a little left field for that specialty. But then for something like I am, which is a bit of a broader specialty, they may want letters from someone in another field to see kind of how well you play with others and making sure that you do care about trying in other specialties that aren't just your primary ones. So something to consider if you only are going to get letters from people in the specialty you're applying to or if you want one or two from somewhere else. And then also when it comes to the content of the letter, I I know I had said that I had really wanted a department head letter, but had I not formed a relationship with that person, I would have rather have had a letter from an attending that I worked much more closely with who wasn't a department head, knowing that they would have made a stronger case. So weigh, use your head. Don't ask for a letter from someone just because they have a position, but they're going to write you something very generic. You're not supposed to read the letter. Don't ask to read the letter. But um, something you can do is you can kind of suggest you know, maybe I can make you a bullet pointed list of some of the things I've done in the hospital, maybe just to remind them kind of of I carried six to seven patients. I saw XYZ cases. I presented at noon conference. Thanks for working with me. Here's my CV. And then send it to them and kind of hope that they can maybe use some of that in their letter. Um, Remind them early. Remind them often. You know, people do forget. Don't feel like you're being annoying. You need the letter in by a certain amount of time. They know that. And ask early, like ask in very close proximity of to when you worked with them, because if you even even a month later, they they're close to forgetting who you are. Also, they might just forget about it in general. Right. So don't yeah. don't take that. For their letter. Yeah. Just don't don't take that personally. It's, it's common. So ask for more letters than you need. Like if you need three letters, ask for like six and hope that you get three back. <laughs> Dang, is it 50 percent? return on the i'm being a little pessimistic oh, okay but that's... i also am being safe <laughs> there's people yeah. that i rotated with that were completely ghosted with two days to spare before eras was due <laughs> two days by like all three of their letter writers wow See? i mean like two of my yeah. three were were like not responding um a, a couple days beforehand and i was flipping yeah i got lucky because like mine were i had mine like a month to spare and i had like the minimum required so yeah. i was good for every single 
residency. I think I think they the people I was got letters from. I think they were thinking the first day for e, that ERAS is available to submit is um, not a big deal because it's you know you can submit for quite a quite a bit of time afterwards. Whereas the student and the applicant is thinking, I want to get my applications in day one. Yeah. And then so uh, that's what I noticed is that um, I think I have one of them respond saying, oh, like it's not it's not due this day. It's just that's the first day it's available. You can submit this later. Um, yeah. So like 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 we're saying, remind early, remind often, get backups also. Like yeah. if these people don't come through, which some of them will not, like we're saying, third years are fine for backups or if you think your third year people know you better than your fourth year people did use those instead but i think the moral is get a lot of letters and get them quick some people ask really early too i think that there's conflicting opinions about when and how to ask for a letter some people are of the mindset that you can go in maybe you you usually spend anywhere from like one to four weeks with with a single attending that you might want to get a letter from. So if you know you're only going to work with them for two weeks, sometime in the middle of your first week, you could float like, hey, I'm interested in getting a letter from you. Let me know what I can do to like help make that a strong yes. Ask it better than I'm asking it now. This is not how I, uh, I would have no letters if I asked it like that. Um, but you can kind of float the idea and then ask them about it and then get the yes before they leave forever and forget that you're a person. So ask early get a soft yes then get a stronger yes and then you can kind of poke them and be like did you submit it do you need things from yeah. me yes that, that is certainly one way to do it there are there are a lot of ways to do it um but that that is a good that, that is definitely a good example so we're about an hour in do you all before we do, do you think it's worth just quickly discussing em and its letters and how oh, it's the slows this. yes yeah, yeah, yes yeah. yes that's it's right also slurs for Word, though. There's slur. slur? Okay, there so is no way that's a that's a word. Slur. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we will wait to take the break. This is very important. Okay. Yeah. So just in the in the topic of letters, um, emergency medicine is one of a few specialties that's wildly different than the rest. We don't get individual letters. We don't have to go ask people for letters, um, and that's not that's not how that works at all. Um, to, to, to do emergency medicine, you essentially you have to, with some exceptions, obviously, because I was talking about a, a surgeon earlier that had this exception, but um, you, you almost have to have an e, a couple ER ro rotations on your belt. And when you do your ER rotation, at least every single rotation I had, um, they'll, they'll have you working with all sorts of different attendings and stuff like that throughout your shifts. And then you're going to have a test at the end. Um, like a clerkship test. Every single ER rotation I did um, did that, and I did four. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> all four t had tests. Um, and then at the end, you're going to get something called a slow, and I don't even remember what it stands for. Standardized it's letter of evaluation. Of evaluation. Yeah, standardized value. letter of recommendation. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so it stands for standardized letter of evaluation, slow for, for short. And it's not written by any one attending. It's written by the entire kind of department. So you have to basically express your intent to have a slow to probably the program director and say, hey, I'm, um, I'm looking to get a slow out of this rotation. Um, and most of them, if you're, if, if you're doing an ER rotation and they know you want to do EM, then they will assume that you want a slow. 
but you still have to ask them for the slow at some point. Um, and then they have a standardized sheet that they, uh, I don't know if it's standardized across the United States or if it's just each, each different department has their own little standard, standardized sheet. But however it works, they will, as a department, they will evaluate you as objectively as they can. Um, so we think, uh, anyway, and, uh, they will have at the end of it, a very kind of, um, formal and professional evaluation of you that doesn't include a lot of the kind of the shining accolades that a personal statement or a personal uh, recommendation would from an individual. It's, it's, a, it's a lot less about kind of shining a- accolades and a lot more about like just brute evalu- evaluation. Um, and you could pretty much apply to EM only with slows. Um, most of them require two or three slows. Um, every single, um, residency I applied to required three letters of recommendation. Um, and by that they meant slows. So, um, if you're doing EM, you can get a letter of recommendation. Um, but you'll have to be careful because you don't want to send a letter of recommendation to a residency that wants only slows. And it's the rule that there's, I haven't seen a single residency program when I was applying that wouldn't take an additional slow, but I have seen residencies that won't take the letter, an extra letter recommendation or something like that. So if you have to give three, you're always safe giving the slows, three slows, but you may not be safe doing two slows and a letter recommendation. So Hmm. it's probably just best to get the slows and just do three rotations in your third year. Yeah, and the, so this is very, very important. And I think you should actually like look up Eastlore and then put that as a source. Is that the This is this is ortho, so Eastlore. Oh, okay. E S L O R. There. Huh. So that this is very important because you actually have to like sign up for this, you have to sign an agreement and then like faculty have to get your form pretty much. And I did not know about this. Oh wow. Because I do not have we don't have an ortho uh, residency at our medical school so not a whole lot of um like detailed advising about this so i found out about this a week in advance before my eras so i just chanced it i was like you know what i'm not i'm not going to ask all my letter writers to redo their letters i'm just going to go with it and what i saw is that luckily at very academic institutions which is like where i got my letters from they may automatically do this so i just took the chance and just hoped someone had it but you can get all all your letters can and probably should be eSlore. Um, and that's huge because you'll look at the letter requirements on most uh, websites of a lot of different institutions. And they'll say, like, we accept both a formative and a eSlore, but eSlore is preferred. So, like, this is something you got to look into. And this is what you should be asking your letter writers if you're going for ortho. And I did not do this. So... That was my like one blunder. One of just one, the only blunder. No, <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of no we're all full of blunders. Um, but thank you guys. Uh, that, that that was big. I didn't know about either of those things. So, all right, uh, I'll take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly. Hello, we're back. All right, everybody. So we were just we just finished talking a lot about. Um, kind of planning the rotations during fourth year, planning how to get the letters during fourth year, 
uh, when to take um, step two and letters. things letters yeah. yeah and the letters and uh, there was there was a lot that, that we that we discussed so now let's talk a little bit about other aspects of building the application two two things that I know a lot of you are probably thinking about are extracurricular activities and how heavily they contribute to the application itself and how residencies view them and also research the big elephant in the room so we'll talk about both those things for sure and we have some other topics as well that we might go into but aren't as heavy hitters so let's go ahead and start with extracurricular activities how they help the residency application and how we think residencies perceive them and i think no better place to start than jack bayer resident president for four years running four more years four more years four here more here years. jack bayer all right so let's see so i was president of my class for four years um founder with rob and co-president of sports medicine interest group here here um what did we, what did we do josh the um that survey this task ISA, force, ISA task, task force, force, yeah. Here, here. I was actually part so of that a one lot too. Of, a lot of <laughs> here, 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 here. A lot of those extracurricular activities, but what surprised me the most in my residency interviews is that that actually did not come up nearly as much as my hobbies. Uh, You'll damn me in. I'll I'll tap you in after I talk about my hobbies. No, <laughs> no, no it's me as well. Okay, so. What did I put on my hobbies? I just listed it in essentially bullet point format. I didn't even make much of an explanation. I just listed them. So I put dog trainer, martial arts, um, weightlifting, basketball, and uh, did I say dog training? Yes. Okay, and piano. Weightlifting and what? Training. Basketball? <laughs> yeah. You play basketball? Well, yeah, we play basketball with the sports medicine interest Don't group. Don't call him oh, out okay. like this we did. on the pod. No! <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on now. Come on now. So, no, I'm just curious. I didn't know that about you. Did you mention dog training? Yeah, I put dog training okay. in there. And that was number and one. And trained dogs. He has a, such a well-trained dog. It's insane. It can stand up if it want, if he wants it to. Or it can get a beer out of the fridge. It can get a beer That's out of the fridge. Than standing it can way. jump entire fences. Well, actually, wasn't that brought up in one of your interviews it was brought up in a lot of my interviews <laughs> i was brought up last night in my interview the um, beer in the fridge thing yeah they're like oh you're in dog training that's come up almost every single interview they're like oh you do dog training uh tell me about that and i brought up my story i raised my dog how i surprisingly got really good at training her and how i trained other people's dogs when they would bring their dogs to my house <coughs> so they loved that so things that just make you stand out because like especially for ortho you know, everybody has these crazy, you know, things that can build a resume, but they also want to know about you if they can hang out with you for five years and if, like, you do cool things and you can teach them cool things and, you know, bring in your outside experiences. So they loved my martial arts, they loved that I played piano, and they loved that I trained dogs. So that came up almost every single interview. And I think of the of the of all the interviews I've done so far, like class president has only come up like twice and it was like just breezed over. They're like, oh, class president for four years. Tell me about your dog training. <laughs> so that's, uh, so take the hobby section seriously. Like don't leave that blank, even though they say it's optional. Like, you know, just put all the cool things about you and they, they'll love to hear it. And then I like the idea of like leaving it vague where you just like list it on there and then it's a conversation starter when like and then you can just talk all about it in your interview so some of my interviews 
literally it's like the entire time like i'll get like a 15 minute room with someone and the entire time will be about fighting because that program director was like a wrestler in high school so something to consider i know it's that same thing i had uh, emergency medicine interest group president and um isa task force not brought up once it was they liked to talk to me about um a little bit about martial arts and then um what else did we talk about a lot i don't even remember what we talked about to be honest yeah. but it wasn't any it was never like a um kind of a boring like like resume builder thing it, they the it, the interviews are always about like that one funky thing you were unsure you wanted to put on because it was a little un- informal and you weren't sure if it was professional enough that's what they like talked about overwhelmingly the case yeah. i think those experiences like the resume builders like being president of the class uh, club president, all these other volunteer things, those are what get you in the door. But that's not. It's once you're in the interview, it's not going to be what totally sells you. Yeah, that's I don't even think it's something that they care about once you're in the interview. I mean, kind of like we what we've discussed. My last interview, literally the last one of the season, we talked about nothing but the Miami Dolphins <laughs> for 25 nice. minutes. Nice, and it was excellent. Because that's exactly what I wanted to talk about this whole time. It was a great sign-off to, like, my interview season. I mean, that's clearly what they wanted to talk about, too. So talk, say what you will about, like, <laughs> not really evaluating super well when they're not asking you, like, tell me about a time when you did this. Or, like, oh, class president was cool. Tell me a little bit more about that. How was that challenging? Or, like, when you talk to somebody about real human stuff, like Jack said, you could spend five years with them. And that's the key. That's the important thing. Mm-hmm. I'll say that they've asked me about my surgery president thing just because it was like not internal medicine. So they were like, why do you want, why did you do this? So that was the only contact that I was asked about anything like that. Mm. But I agree with you largely. They've brought up hobbies. Like I've done competitive sports my whole life. They brought that up. Um, and the, like I switched my major during college. So they brought that up. So things that set <coughs> you apart. Um, and I, I found that something important, like if they, say I've, I've had a couple people transition into that question or prompt kind of like oh you've done that like tell me more about uh the sport that you've done and i think something nice to do is to have like a like a pertinent story or like something that you've learned this is just how i approach it something that you've learned from kind of this experience how that how that has contributed to your life is sometimes a nice way to expand on it rather than being like yeah i did i do that so I think uh, read the room. I mean, some people just want to have a normal conversation, but I think it's nice to have something to expand on at wit so something interesting doesn't just kind of deflate in the conversation. Right. And oftentimes those interesting things, kind of like Jackie was mentioning, will boil out. Um, <clears throat> like in my hobbies, I don't have that I was an engineer in a past life, but that comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. I'll say, tell me about the time you were an engineer. What happened? Why'd you switch? Because that's interesting to them and they want to talk about interesting things. Mm-hmm. Same thing about like maybe being like uh, having. So, for example, like having your room set up in a certain way, mm-hmm. they might wind up asking you about things that are going on around the room. And I played I played the piano in last night's interview. Did there you, you really? Yeah, that's fun. So another another good example It was on like his hobbies and it was there that they could see. So it was it, it, it's very like advantageous to have something ready for what you know they're going to ask you about that's interesting about you. Mm -hmm. Like fighting. 
piano fighting whatever my face so this is fighting a- <laughs> we got two fighters in the Fight. room so this is like not normal <laughs> and now jack and i will duke it out for the rest of the podcast. no um this, so this is also a plug to say if you don't have any hobbies that's also okay because they don't need to be like i was a ufc fighter neither of us were ufc fighters but if you were like a ufc fighter you don't have to have done something like that you can just say i really like horror movies and someone's going to want to talk to you about that. They're going to ask you for movie recs. So it doesn't have to be some crazy, like, I make macaroons hobby or something like that. And if you don't have a hobby, it's good for your mental wellness during medical school. Try to pick something up. You can even say, like, I just picked up rock climbing last week, and now it's something I want to get into. Like, that's fine. So, you know, use your time during medical school not only to keep up with your hobbies, but maybe find a new one because people want to hear about you being excited to learn new things and pick new things up and try to balance your life outside of medicine too so don't worry if you don't have a hobby that's that's fine and we're going to talk more about that in a future podcast so yes we will please um be prepared extracurriculars (laughs) i don't know if anyone else here is in the same boat as me i've had a job during medical school that i think has been talked about in most of my interviews i did not know that oh i i have employment during medical school so um, I was a I was a tutor for much of college and my background is in English and screenplays so um, I work for this external company where I can make my own hours which I don't recommend to everyone Um, I just I like essays a lot so um, I work for a company where I can make my own hours and pick up uh, like personal statements and kind of help people work through them and uh, get ready to apply to medical school Um, which has really come up in most of the interviews that I've gone to, but it's not a requirement. And in fact, I think most medical schools, including this one, kind of discouraged from holding jobs during medical school. But I think one where you can make your own hours if you did want to do that is it's not a bad way to make a little supplemental income. And also, it's been a good talking point uh, during during the process, but I think you could have gotten the same from doing like some sort of longitudinal community service uh, or something like that. So it's not necessarily something I'd encourage other people to do, but um, it is an option out there and it's something that I talk about a lot. Here's something to consider that actually freaked me out and then I was very pleasantly surprised when ERAS applications came out is that like service opportunities or service um, experience it's not limited to community service so like I remember looking on like all the program director surveys and like the averages it was like for ortho average 12 (coughs) service activities and I was like how did anyone possibly get in 12 community service opportunities like done in med school and that's not really how it is it's like being class president that counted as a service opportunity so um, like when you're looking at the averages, even though like it's not all about going by the numbers, like it it helps to know that you will probably check that box off if you end up, you know, just being involved with your school. It's true, and you could swing it. Like for the sports medicine club, I had co-founder as one, and I had co-president as another one. And I did that too, inspired <laughs> by you. Uh. So, so there's two. Very um, nice. Go ahead. I feel there are two approaches you can take, um, and this kind of segues into research as well, which we don't have to talk about right now, but I think people can either take the approach of like quantity or, um, I don't want to say quality, but maybe like depth of the experience. So some people want to just have like 12 service experiences, and some people may have two or three, but they were really 
substantive and you did really a lot. You spent a lot of hours on those things. So I think you can take kind of two approaches. Similarly with research, you can either do like 15 little tiny case reports or maybe like one or two projects that are really like longitudinal, required a lot of hours. You were involved in many steps of the process. So also, if you're not involved in a million clubs, this is not to say that you need to be involved in any clubs, really, if you don't want to. But you can either have maybe lots of little involvements or one or two, but be prepared to talk deeply about them. Yeah, there's like a, there was a medical student I rotated at with um, in Georgetown, and like he's an absolute stud, and he only put his one research experience, which like the average is usually nine. He put his entire research year as one experience, but in that one experience, he got twenty publications. Right. So like his one research experience smoked all of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit odd the way that ERAS sets it up. Like there's publications and there's also research experiences I, I, I honestly like we're not going to go into the way that the application is laid out and, and i don't think anyone truly has a, a good understanding of the master way of doing that yeah like, perfectly i agree i, I think that it's kind of just wasted breath going over it like i did mine in bullet points and other people did short essays and again like just formatting is everything is so up in the air with it that just do it in a way that makes you happy and it's going to be fun just get the information to the people that need the info and you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> think that uh, an overarching yeah. message from here is that you don't necess- your extracurriculars don't necessarily have to line up with the specialty that you're interested in. Like many of mine were surgery and now I did not apply surgery. So <clears throat> in fact, it might be something interesting <clears throat> to talk about if you're involved in things that are not directly in line with what you're doing. So do what you like to do. Don't Go out of your way in a crazy way to be the president of the somewhat interest group just because you're applying derm doesn't mean you have to run the derm club or something like that. So it's it's okay to just do what you want to do, spend your time volunteering or being involved or having hobbies in ways that you want to do it because at the end of the day, your application is going to read more authentic to who you are as a person and what your experience was versus what you think they might want you to have, which ends up not even being talked about. Yeah. Excellent summary. And like when I like, cause I'm, oh, I'm someone that like would look at the data and it would end up freaking me out. But like going on residency explorer definitely eased my concerns. So like for ortho, it was like average research experiences like fourteen, and I'm just like looking at that. I was like, how am I gonna squeeze fourteen into here? And then I look at residency explorer, and it's like the bulk of the applicants are in like the five to seven range. And then it's like the few applicants are just cranking up the average with like 20 plus experiences. Yeah. So I guess we can kind of segue into research now specifically, like how important it is for our various specialties, at least the ones that we could, that we could speak to, that whether the type is important, whether the number is important, whatever it might be. So Jackie and Jack both touched on this, but I guess to put in my two cents, and again, just like the previous podcast and all of this podcast, the only real data that we have to back any of this up is what we have found on ERAS and the websites of the places that we applied to. Outside of that, this is all experiential. So I think that for something like internal medicine, you don't really need like any. You, you need don't like, need much. You need like three. <laughs> I think three is like the median. Like or experiences, not necessarily publications. Right, experiences. So, if you, I mean, publications is typical for. That's something I'd have to look up. Oh, okay. We could look it up. 
I think it will also depend on the type of program. Like if you're applying to community programs, typically they're not going to ask you to have as many publications as if you applied to say Georgetown. They're probably going to want to see more publications in general than like community programs. So I think uh, (coughs) when it comes to tailoring your application, if you know, say you want to stay somewhere geographically that maybe has like high density of academic institutions like Boston, then maybe you would want to try to crank up the publications a bit more. And But if you know you want to stay in an area that has a lot of community hospitals, maybe you don't need to go out of your way to get as many publications. Um, but speaking of publications, I think that uh, my, my first piece of advice is not to panic, because it's not as difficult to get things out, I think, as people think it is. Um, I, I think start early. You can start probably as early. Wait till step one is done, I would say, for a lot of people. Um, find a research mentor and a good time to find publications if you haven't written anything before is case reports especially during your third year when you're just kind of getting your feet wet you're learning the wards a great way to get to help your residents since they need they need to publish work with your residents if you have an interesting case do your research on that patient you can write a case report on that more likely than not and get that turned around and published pretty quickly and that's a nice way to kind of get volume is to to do something like a case report find residents who you like to work with work with your peers work with your other students who are rotating with you it's a great way to um, bolster your clinical experiences and also get some research as you're going and then if you can find longitudinal projects um, I think that those are typically harder to come by um, that will turn out a number of publications consider the timeline Um, For people who haven't published a lot, there are many, many papers will take years. Um, If they come out with a manuscript, it likely won't be published during your time working on the project. So be cognizant of timeline. It's okay to ask, you know, I'm trying to bolster my numbers on my application. Do you think this is going to reach manuscript level, publication level within the next year? You know, it's okay to ask those questions and it's okay to say no to those projects because you are on a timeline. So keeping those things in mind, um, and again, consider if you want to go for volume or depth of project, which I don't really know if that's the way I want to say it, but I think my point's made. It is. And also bear in mind that just because you don't get a publication out of something doesn't mean that you can't put something on ERAS from it. So like we're looking right here at the residencyexplore.org. Uh, the main components of your profile are adding step one and step two scores, obviously, the number of publications, research experiences, volunteer experiences and work experiences so just to put it plainly the number the experiences that you have are three research volunteer or work and like jack was saying work or volunteer can be any kind of service-oriented thing like being a part of a club or what have you uh, work is obviously employment so jackie had employment during school i had employment before school and then research experiences still count even if you haven't had a publication for it. Correct. So longitudinally, you can be a part of this long-term in-depth project that might not literally publish or produce anything by the time you're in medical school or apply, but it's still important to have on your CV. So for internal medicine, mean number of research experiences, 2.9. So I nailed it. Three. What's the, what's Let's the, go. Do they have like <laughs> a... Um, Papers? Do they have like an average? number of abstracts, presentations, and publications, 5.4. Whoa. No, that's that's not like Oh, that's posters? Does that include posters? Yeah. Oh, 
Okay. Well, so that's another kind. I don't want to say easy, but that's like a, a nice way to try to increase your numbers if you're looking to is to submit any abstracts that you've written. Doesn't even have to be a whole paper to conferences. Many times there will be local chapters of larger conferences that you can send your abstracts to. Lots of times residents um, will be more than happy to help you with these things because they want to get numbers uh, for themselves. So work with your residents. Um, and work with your classmates because I think that that's a nice way to kind of expedite the process and uh, you know build collegiality. I agree. Uh, I mean, me and Jackie spent all of third year together, and in almost every um, what am I trying to say rotation that we were a part of, we like produced either a case report or a poster from mm -hmm. or both. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So like a case report and a poster. That's two publications. Like per rotation. Yeah. And even if it's the same, like, topic, a case report being published and a poster going to a conference, that's two publications. Yeah, that's two different publications. Yeah, mm -hmm. for the same topic. So, and the residents were always pumped, and it's a good way to, like, research the patients. Like, you really get to know your patients that way. Mm -hmm. It's a nice way to be proactive to your attending. It's a nice way to stand out, to be like, this is the patient I'm writing up. Attendings really like to see you take that kind of initiative as a third year as well. So, um I think that that's a really nice way to maximize your time. So here's something, uh, this is for USDO seniors, um, but mean number of research experiences for emergency medicine for matched were 1.9 and for unmatched were 2.1. Heck yeah, <laughs> so wow. I going strong. <laughs> you. Wow. Mean number of abstracts, presentations, publications for matched 2.7 and unmatched 3.7. <laughs> so I mean, it just shows that like, it's not all that important for at least for emergency medicine. Which is <laughs> <laughs> well, weird because I um I have I had like an entire research experience at the NIH. Like I did a whole post back at the NIH before um, medical school even started, and I have like probably like four, five different like real publications, like like real public not case reports just publications hey case reports um, are real publications you know what i mean much. though right <laughs> i do like a like a, a full-blown like scientific method yeah um that kind of thing and so i like pretty much never did research in medical school because i didn't really feel like i needed much i mean it's a graduation requirement i've got to eventually do it but um I didn't do much in terms of research throughout my year, and I didn't really emphasize it that much because um, I didn't feel like I needed to. And it's just crazy that emergency medicine, which is what I'm going into, uh, you pretty much don't even need it. Okay, so this is for that was for DOs. This is for MDs now. So mean number of research experience for emergency medicine, 3.2, unmatched 2.0. Okay, so it helps the MDs. Huh? <laughs> Publications help them. That's the number of publications? That's for research experiences. Research experiences. Abstracts, presentations, wow. publications, 5-1 versus 2-7 unmatched. Okay. But, I mean, it's such like a, it's not, it's a pretty small difference that, Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not a make or break type of thing. I think, um, I think I had like posters galore on my application. I mean, something stupid. So, that's, I didn't even, I didn't even think about research throughout medical school because of how much substance I had prior to medical school. It sounds like I didn't even need it, honestly. Probably not. <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> um, we were a little bit of an outlier there, I believe. Yeah, I think I am, yeah, yeah. which is crazy. Not all of us did research at the National Institutes of Health. 
But Rob did. <laughs> I, I, I did, yes, but I didn't have I didn't have anything come of it really. So I'm not like a really good example. Actually, something just came of it after five years of being a part of this project. I got emailed just the other day the same thing, except for it was 2014, and they just emailed me about the publication coming out, yeah. and I was like, "That is, let's see how many. That's like nine, nine years. years. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So don't rely on undergrad stuff." Um, but the graduate stuff or the, the medical school things, you can definitely get a lot of experiences and a lot of publications just by what Jackie was saying, like asking questions, being a part of the team, wanting to help out, learning more about the patients and just wanting to kind of like, I don't know, be innovative in medicine. You know, it's, it's fun. It, it publications are not only something you need to do, but they'll really help you, uh, I guess, become a larger part of the medical community. I think. Yeah. And that's the part that's fun about writing is that you're writing to the community and yeah. um, you feel like you're adding something to right. humanity in a Possibly. kind of a way. Yeah. In a, in a long standing way as well. So as opposed to seeing it as something that you need to do, see it as something that you want. To, I mean, if you don't want to do it, you know, don't do it. But it, it it's good for for a lot of different reasons. Um, OK, Jack, you getting all those. uh you getting all those citations? You just cited like four things. I don't actually. He know sent them to me. I, I, okay. <laughs> so, for and don't don't worry, those will be on the show notes and all that for all listening. Um, so the type of research we talked about case reports, we talked about um, like conference presentations or both oral and poster. What do you think about? And uh, you mentioned previously. I think this is important for Jackie to answer. What do you think about having multiple? like disciplines of research in your portfolio? Um, I, a lot of programs have shown interest in that. I've had a couple, I've actually had couple people say both things for me because I, I do have a lot of cardiology and cardiac surgery type stuff on my application, but I also, because we publish so much during third year in so many different fields, I feel like there's also a wide breadth of a lot of different things. So I've had a lot of people say, hey, why is all your stuff cardiac, which it's not but kind of that's a nice talking point to say, well, I like heart stuff. And then on the other hand, people have said, I like that it's not all in the same field. I like that you have stuff in a lot of different fields that shows that you're not pigeonholing yourself. So it, I don't know if this is the same for super competitive subspecialties, but at least in internal medicine, I think people like to see that you play well with other specialties and that you have a respect for and are interested in learning about other disciplines. Um, I think that they like to see kind of that broad perspective um, on the specialty. It, like even one of the longer projects that I've been working on since first year um, is totally like kind of not medicine adjacent. It's like a space medicine project, which a lot of people have been interested in just because it's weird. So being involved in a project that you're really interested in that maybe even isn't like a really cool niche case report is also fun because people like to see you talk about stuff that you're excited to talk about. So um, finding projects like that, if you don't know where to start, ask your professors, maybe your school um, has a research coordinator here, we have Dr. Bachman. So reaching out to people who maybe have more contacts in the field or in maybe a specialty of interest, a lot of times people um, will be able to connect you with a research mentor who's publishing or maybe even with a, an upperclassman who's publishing a lot. I know I've had um, some students be referred to, to me to work with them on projects. So that's another way to get involved. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. That's a really good, really good summary. Um, so I guess we can move on to kind of closing out the the episode here. It's not going to be a full close yet. We still have some time with you all. But um, one of the questions we that we've gotten before is when do I need to know? Like 100% what and where I'm going to apply to. And they ask how we knew at that point. And so, does that differ between specialties? Yeah. So, Jack, we'll start with you. When did when do you think it's best to know for sure when to apply to ortho? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's really. <clears throat> I think most people that are applying to ortho have like known it for a decent amount of time, but to know that if you can go ortho or bust is from for future classes is probably going to be after your step two comes back um and just like knowing that you check off some of the other boxes but like if if you do if you don't do well enough on step two you kind of have to start broadening your perspective unfortunately so right before uh the application deadline i guess yeah (laughs) unfortunately yeah um on that note just to kind of continue your thought there would you take a gap year if you think that your step two, your pubs, whatever it might be, aren't up to snuff? I've considered it, and I've like worked with a lot of medical students um, that are now back in their fourth year and rotating. A lot of the people I rotated with did gap years. Um, I chose not to do a gap year because um, an orthopedic surgeon and that we had as a guest speaker at a sports medicine interest group, I asked, what are your thoughts on a gap year? And he said, don't do it and go full send. So that's what I'm that's what I'm going for right now. Now, depending on who you are, if you have to build up your application, it's definitely something to consider if like you're like me and you only want ortho and you can't really see, see yourself doing anything else. So my opinion on that is is um it's probably most optimum to know midway through your third year. Um, because you got to start setting up what the beginning of your fourth year is going to look like. And that means setting up away rotations. It means scheduling your step two and knowing how those two are going to interface with one another and away rotations. You really get the good away rotations when you apply early and applying early is the middle of your third year. So I think it's best and it's unfortunate because you only like midway through your third year, you're definitely not exposed to everything in medicine or you don't even get like a very broad view. You'll probably get a few rotations in, um, clerkships in, and then that'll be it. Um, so you pretty much have, if you, if you're going to be, if you're going to optimally run through medical school, I would say probably the first two years to figure out what kind of organs you like or something like that. And then if you like certain organs, that'll, that'll tell you whether you like some IM thing. I think the first two years will tell you that. Um, and then, um, your clerkship is your opportunity to learn if <coughs> surgery is for you or if IM is for you or OB-GYN. Um, <clears throat> and if you get much more specialized than that, derm, ophthalmology, things like that, radiology, you really don't have much opportunity to figure that out in a, like, in a perfect optimum position to, like, to really know. Yeah, um, it's, it's so annoying that like, you know, a metric is now gone to find out if you're competitive earlier. But I guess, like, you can gauge your 
confidence in doing well on like step two based on your shelf scores because i think that will correlate very heavily to performing well in step two yeah but i think the question is more about when when do you when is it optimum to know what specialty you're going for i don't think it's when it when are you when when are you most poised to um make that final decision yeah but i'm talking about like if you have to make the decision to take a gap year because you are set on one specialty that requires a very high level of competitiveness oh okay yeah yeah yeah. um that's true yeah you could do all these if you want to do derm and you make that decision in the middle of your third year you set up away derm rotations and then you get like a 220 on step two um yeah though you might you might be setting yourself up for a gap year um which isn't bad no just is also some of these program or some of these uh specialties almost like appreciate a gap year more it shows like a lot of dedication to something that as we've been mentioning you don't get a lot of exposure to in your third or even your fourth year and definitely yeah. not your first and second yeah so even if your step score is good you know ophthalmology dermatology taking a year off to get some really heavy research done meet some really important people go to some conferences and really present and network and just build your resume just all the way around seen as an advantage so don't don't completely write off gap years as being something to kind of bounce back you can use it to continue your pathway in a lot of these really tough specialties yeah and i think in terms of knowing like when to know after you've kind of passed midway through third year um if you still don't know the the truth of the matter is you can really change that decision pretty much up until submitting applications um you might have some explaining to do if you did a whole bunch of surgery rotations and now you're applying to im but it's not like that is it hasn't happened like it totally happens so um you don't really you're not really forced to know until basically you submit applications and you can get away with it in many cases um, without knowing up until you you know submit an application you have a, a resume that looks nothing like a um, an IM resume and then you submit to IM and they'll they'll you know they'll still take your application seriously um, so it's probably optimum to know in the middle of third year but you have a lot of wiggle room all the way up until August of your or September of your fourth year to really I, that's my impression I agree. I don't know. yeah yeah so okay all right um so we could talk now about kind of going back and meeting oh that's a fun discussion Josh Jack and Jackie and me and Rob from four years ago what would you do differently now knowing what if you knew what you if you know now if you knew now at m1 what would you do like would you change anything i would have started anki earlier (laughs) (laughs) i would have started anki a year before med school (laughs) for real (laughs) 
You probably wouldn't let yourself get in that hole either. Yeah, I got in like a 17,000 hole. So. <laughs> oh, it's not man. even a hole. I don't even know what that is. It's an abyss. So, <laughs> so this podcast obviously is catered quite a bit towards uh, medical students, um, but pre-meds might also be listening. And if you don't know what Anki is, Learn. don't worry about it. I can't believe we differ so hard. <laughs> Learn, it. Learn it. Learn it. Do worry about it. Learn it now and start doing Anki. Well, I, I've, I've known students who studied for their MCAT with Anki. So I think, oh, okay, I think yeah. people are using it. Because I've seen people applying to medical school and I'm like, there's this thing called Anki. And they're like, I know old person, like what Anki is. They're using it already. So I taught my it's in the youth I now. taught my buddy in PA school how to use Anki. And I, it was funny, I saw him over Christmas, and I taught him last Christmas how to use Anki, and he told me, he's like, dude, when you put me on Anki, it put PA school on easy mode. Yeah. Like, And everybody thought I was cheating on the exams. Because <laughs> I was so easy. It's that. a superpower, but it, it comes with life draining. It's like it, it's like a real thing. Like You gain a lot of ability from it, but it sucks the soul out of you. It is with great power. Yeah. <laughs> great responsibility. Great liability. Great liability, yes. So Anki's great. Um, yes, I would fine. I'll I'll agree with all of you. <laughs> familiarizing yourself with really the ninety nine percent of how we learn medicine, the tool to do that is important. Uh, anything else besides that? Hmm. Um I I would not have done step two the way I did. Um, I probably would have gotten more involved in some physical activity in my first two years, something like, and not the gym. I mean, the gym's nice, but it's almost like a, it's it's not a game, you know, it's not something fun. It's not to relax. It's yeah, it's, it's like a, it's like a chore almost, but a nice chore. How about for your, uh, applicate, like your profile itself? Oh, okay. I wasn't sure what we were talking about. Um, for my profile itself, um, that's important. That's hobbies. I agree totally. I think that that's they, it cannot be overstated. Um, but coming to the end of the the, the application episode, I think profiles profiles important. Yeah. Um. No, I I I like that. I didn't do anything my first two years. I did school. I did Anki, and then I took tests, and that was that was my life for two years. Um. And I think that was the way to go. Step one, I took step one. We all did. We took step one and it was scored. And then so our step one was a big, big deal. Um, whereas now step one is past fail and step two is the big one. So I don't know how things would have changed because in, um, in our cohort, I suppose, um, the first two years were very, very, very important. And then you could kind of start to, to, to like see the light of day again in your third year. Um, and I, I wonder if now it's like the first two years are less important and then the third year is like crunch time. I don't know. Um, but I like the fact that I didn't do any extracurriculars. I didn't do any like sports. I didn't get involved with the school at all. I just did Anki and took tests. And then my third year, I got more involved. I like became a president of, a, of an interest group here. I joined an, an ISA like task force. Um, I like started to read again, um, like started things to write like a that. Book. Yeah, started to write a book. <laughs> so, it like I got much more back to my normal self, which um, I think that was the right move. I, I don't know if I would have changed anything other than just uh, changed the way I would have done my 
step two and away rotation <laughs> setup. Um, I would have, I would definitely would have done step two in the very beginning. That was unnecessarily stressful for me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's me. What about y'all? I, I, um, so going for ortho, knowing I always wanted to go for ortho, I was so fixated that it matters. Your research experiences have to be ortho because it shows dedication to the field. And then I quickly, actually not as quick as I would have liked to realize that, um, as long as you're getting research out there, you're learning the process. Like that definitely means quite a bit. So like, don't be afraid to branch out to, to other specialties if you can find research opportunities because it still shows that like you care about you know progressing the field of medicine and and also you care about learning about the research process so that was something big for me but also i've like seen a decent amount of people like make this this blunder is that they're not really focusing on like the immediate goal so what's your immediate goal it's to pass your class or it's to honor rotation or it's to do well on step and like I've seen someone who's like diehard psychiatry and instead of like trying to put all the effort to honor that rotation, like the, the student may have been getting psychiatry certifications on the side, which like is great. could be a resume builder, but what's going to be more important to spend all your energy on and it's going to be honoring the rotation. That's probably a bigger key. So like focusing on the immediate goal at hand with like, some focus on the side goals yeah academics comes like first in med school mm-hmm. I, th- I think what? that's yeah so it's like if i'm like struggling with say i'm in cpr and i'm struggling passing cardiology that's cardi cardiology respiratory and renal for people who don't know it's not cardio it's not cpr it's, yeah. it's a course here. so if i'm like struggling in cardiopulmonary renal and like i may not pass I should not be on the side getting a certification and how to put in an intramedullary nail for orthopedic surgery. Like I have to focus on what's my immediate goal and it's passing this test. I had a little bit of a, a run in with that mentality in my second year. I was like, Oh, I should start doing research and focus a little bit more on that. Cause I have nothing, which was true. And I got involved in research and it was draining the life out of me. And I wasn't able to like focus as well on my studies. You know, I wasn't I staying this. up. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. staying up like as late as I normally did doing Anki or doing practice questions. I was kind of breaking my routine in a system that really worked for me academically because of the research. So what Jack is saying, I completely 100% agree with focus on the here and now in medical school it's the day-to-day is really important yeah that's actually one of the program directors um in my emergency medicine rotations he said that uh, he i didn't even ask for that advice and he gave it he's like whatever i think i was i think i was asking about um um maybe I was asking like what kind of experiences are good or something like that. Um, and he said, no matter what, whatever it is you choose to do, it's better to do nothing and get a really good grade than it is to do something and get a worse grade because you're doing something like the academics really is the number one, most critical issue at hand in every single class you're taking and every single test you take. That's the, that is more important in your life than anything else. Um, in regards to your medical career and setting yourself up success. Truly. Yeah. Do well in the academics. 
yeah do well yeah i like going into like new experiences like medical school i went in blank slate i'm going to focus on my studying and then see how well i do on that first test and then if i feel that i can handle more responsibility then i'll take on the next thing and then once i get used to that i'll take on the next thing once i get used to that until that i'm sure that i'm never going to be over my limit where i like i'm going to sacrifice my performance at anything yeah what about you jackie what do you think jackie yeah um, I, I agree with what everyone has said. Um, I do think we're trying to stay as present as possible and focusing on kind of the academics is important. I, f- I feel like I spread myself pretty thin from my first year um, with the, the job and some of my longitudinal research projects, which I think if I could go back, um, I would probably still do them again. Um, but I think that I probably would have tried to I think I would have tried to remind myself about what the priorities were, which is like you guys are saying, kind of staying present with the coursework and the the, the clerkship rotations and whatnot. Um, but also reminding yourself that it's not the end of the world um, if your academics fail. So I think also maintaining life outside of medical school. I know that we say, you know, wellness and it's kind of uh, like a funny thing now, but I do think that maintaining life outside of the hospital um, and outside of your academics is important because we all do poorly on one test or another and falling apart because that's all you have is also not healthy. Um, so while it is the main thing to be focusing on, it's not the only thing to focus on. So um, I think I also would have put a little bit less pressure on myself so I didn't uh, cry in a stairwell when I did poorly on a test. I think I would have wanted to to be more stable and not have done that. And I think that if I'd been a little more realistic with myself about it's just a test, one test in one semester in one year in four years, you're not even a doctor yet, relax. I think that would have um, maybe helped me stay more grounded. So keeping those things in mind, I think, as well. And then I think a, a big thing I struggled with was specialty during medical school. So reminding myself that no one no one cared uh, or was as invested in my journey uh, apart from me. So if I changed my specialty, no one was going to be mad at me or disappointed. In fact, they might be disappointed that I forced myself into doing something I didn't want to do. So taking the pressure off there um, in that no one is looking at you and no one cares in the best possible way, I think also would have uh, would have helped me to stay a little bit more grounded. Yeah. And one piece of advice, just wrapping up here, one piece of advice you would give to someone applying within your specialty. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah, Jack, Jack's your, the orthos, the one that requires yeah, the most advice. Everyone <laughs> is the most interested in ortho. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I think I gave a lot of advice throughout this. Um, yeah, you did, but give another one. Uh, <laughs> or your favorite one. Be prepared to work hard. Uh, <laughs> be prepared to get really stressed. Uh, have very <laughs> thick skin. I know uh, we like to preach about wellness and and uh, not being mistreated, but the unfortunate reality is you're probably going to get mistreated along the road. So, and uh, buckle up, you know, <laughs> a little wellness along that. A road little too. wellness around the road, but the unfortunate reality is you got to have a thick skin. If an attending yells at you, let it go in one ear out the other. I know we want to change the the toxic medi- medicine culture that uh, unfortunately exists today, but. You know, you can do that when you're an attendant. <laughs> so you just gotta get there. You gotta get there first. Now is not the time. You gotta get there first. 
Yeah, that's fair. I EM has got a lot less of a. It's not. It's not that crazy difficult to get into EM as as my impression of it anyway. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, even military, I didn't didn't feel like it was tremendously competitive, although the internet says it is. Um, I I think maybe the one piece of advice I would have for someone trying to get into EM do em rotations and when you're on the rotations um once you know how to do something take the initiative and go do it like if you have a patient that's waiting for a uh, some stitches um don't don't wait for the your your resident to have the time and like sit down and then um get yourself ready to go and and into the room to do the stitches like go prepare the room Go get all the supplies without talking to your resident. Get it all done um, right from the get go, and then go up to go up to your your um, resident and say the room is ready to go. The patient's waiting there. Um, like I'm ready to do the stitches whenever you are. Um, just let me know and we can get started. It'll be done in no time flat. And they like that way way more than you walking up to say um, when when do you think we'll have time to do the the stitches. Like just as an example, like just having that initiative goes so far. The third years eat it up. Um, they absolutely love it. So that's a really easy way to get um, really good um, uh, scores and and you know letters slows and everything like that. And EM is just taking that initiative. Yeah, that's another thing for ortho is like um, every time you're gonna walk into a new room with a brand new attending you've never worked with before, they're gonna assume that you know absolutely nothing. They're gonna assume that you don't even know how to scrub <laughs> into a surgery. Oh no. And that's the unfortunate reality. And they'll ask, do you have you ever scrubbed into a surgery before, even though it's like my fifth or sixth rotation? <laughs> and then you tell them, No, I've never even seen a knife before. <laughs> so like you wanna So what someone explained to me is that quiet mouths don't eat. And that's like you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta ask you gotta be like hey can I suture because you've been I've been watching for a week now and like I want to suture or someone we're doing a leg amputation you're like hey can I saw through this femur and they'll let you do it if they if they trust you and you've been kind of showing initiative so did you say saute saw through saw through femur. oh okay I'm but or <laughs> if you want to saute a femur I don't know <laughs> I said sauce tea oh sauce, maybe he said sauce, sauce tea. <laughs> So quiet mouths don't eat, you know, don't be afraid to speak up and, and like ask to like improve yourself and ask to learn something new. I like that. And really just internal medicine is very largely like a culmination of all the fields here. Just like while you're going through it, you got to enjoy the ride. Like you're a part of the totem pole. You're a very low part on the totem pole, obviously. So don't take yourself too seriously while going through it. Mm-hmm. Anything you do is going to be very, most of the time, very easily rectified if it's a mistake and also like encouraged and I guess praised if it's a, uh, if it's not a mistake, if it's a success. So Mm -hmm. take all that, take all your mistakes with a grain of salt. Let your team help you always be a part of the team, always team first, patient and team always come first and just enjoy the ride. Just take the most out of everything you can get. Learn as much as possible and have fun. Mm-hmm. That's my advice. That's good. My, my advice for IM would be um, what, what everyone has said. 
But I, I also think that in IM, we kind of get to know our patients longitudinally, like we've said before. So specifically, I would say really get to know your patients. If you're assigned two patients, check in on them between rounds when your residents are writing notes. Get to know them. Get to know the names of their family members. Sometimes calling someone's husband or wife while they're in the hospital makes a huge difference to the way the patient's hospital course goes. So um, I think use your role as a medical student to help your residents by building relationships with the patients. Get the whole story. Listen to it again from the beginning and uh, learn the pathologies. If you have a kidney failure patient, go read about kidney failure. I think that that's something you can do during internal medicine that will help you with shelf, that will help you with step, that will help you just become a better clinician. So um, get to know your patients in every way. Um, if you have two, you should know them. Yeah, Both. I agree with all this. Is there, is there time for? No. No, okay. Well, I'll just tell. It's actually, it's actually like twenty seconds long. Oh, yeah. It's like a twenty. <laughs> well, I want to see the kind of time we had. Um, there was one time when um, we needed to get a signed form for a surgery, and the rest. It's don't worry. It's going to be. It's not going to be. This is already taking longer. <laughs> um, and we had to get the sign, uh, the form signed. So the resident was out doing the rounds and stuff like that. And I got the form, and I took the initiative to like write out all of the details except for the actual signature line and I did not get all the details correct there was a specific kind of um, wording that they wanted on the the name of the surgery but so I got it wrong and they had to like go find the form and redo it again but the even though I did it wrong and it kind of like took a little bit extra time they all the residents were like really happy that I was taking the initiative so even if that even if taking that initiative um, might extend things a little bit it's it lo still looks good yes okay Finn <laughs> all right. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>